This is the Witnesses of History podcast, presented by Jeff Longley. Hello and welcome to Witnesses of History for the beginning of March, although we only have one dated report this time, which is this one from Elizabeth Fry on the 4th of March, 1817, as she visits a prison. I have just returned from a most melancholy visit to Newgate, where I've been at the request of Elizabeth Fricker, previous to her execution for robbery, tomorrow morning at eight o'clock. I found her much hurried, distressed and tormented in mind, her hands cold and covered with something like the perspiration preceding death and in a universal tremor. The women who were with her said she had been so outrageous before our going that they thought a man must be sent to manage her. However, after a serious time with her, her troubled soul became calmed. But is it for man thus to take the prerogative of the Almighty into his own hands? Is it not his place rather to endeavour to reform such, or restrain them from the commission of further evil? At least to afford poor erring fellow mortals, whatever may be their offences, an opportunity of proving their repentance by amendment of life. Besides, this poor young woman, there are also six men to be hanged, one of whom has a wife near her confinement, also condemned, and seven young children. Since the awful report came down, he has been quite mad from horror of mind. A straight waistcoat could not have kept him within bounds. He has just bitten the turnkey. I saw the man come out with his hand bleeding as I passed the cell. Well, we go back two years to look at a report on factory conditions from Elizabeth Bentley from about 1815. And this is written in a question and answer format. What age are you? 23. Where do you live? Leeds. What time did you begin to work at the factory? When I was six years old. At whose factory did you work, Mr Burks? What kind of mill is it? Flax mill. What was your business in that mill? I was a little doffer. What were your hours of labour in that mill? From five in the morning till nine at night, when they were thronged. For how long a time together have you worked that excessive length of time? Or about a year. What were the usual hours of labour when you were not so thronged? from six in the morning till seven at night. What time was allowed for meals? Forty minutes at noon. Had you any time to get your breakfast or, or for drinking? No, we had to get it as we could. Do you consider doffing a laborious employment? Yes. Explain what you had to do. When the frames are full, they have to stop the frames and take the flyers off and take the four bobbins off and carry them to the roller and then put the empty ones on and set the frame going again. Does that keep you constantly on your feet? Oh yes, there are so many frames and they run so quick. Your labour is very excessive. Yes, you haven't time for anything. Suppose you flagged a little or were late. What would they do? Strap us. And, they're in no ha- and they are in the habit of strapping those who are last in doffing? Yes. Constantly? Yes. Girls as well as boys? Yes. Have you ever been strapped? Yes. Severely? Yes. Is the strap used so as to hurt you excessively? Yes, it is. I've seen the overlip looker go to the top end of the room where the little girls hug the can to the backminders. He has taken a strap and a whistle in his mouth and sometimes he has got a chain and chained them and strapped them all down the room. What was his reason for that? He was very angry. 
Did you, do you live far from the mill? Yes, two miles. Had you a clock? No, we hadn't. Were you generally there in time? Yes, my mother has been up at four in the morning, and at two in the morning the colliers used to go to their work at three or four o'clock, and when she heard them stirring she has got up out of her warm bed and gone out and asked them the time, and I have sometimes been at Hunslet Car at two o'clock in the morning when it was streaming down with rain, and we have had to stay till the mill was opened. You're considerably deformed in person as a consequence of this labour. Yes, I am. And what time did it come on? I was about 13 years old when it began coming, and it has got worse since. It is five years since my mother died, and my mother was never able to get me a good pair of stays to hold me up, and when my mother died I had to do it for myself, and got me a pair. Were you perfectly straight and healthy before you worked at a mill? Yes, I was as straight a little girl as ever went up and down town. Were you straight till you were 13? Yes, I was. Did your deformity come upon you with much pain and weariness? Yes, I cannot express the pain all the time it was coming. Do you know of anybody that has been similarly injured in their health? Oh yes, in their health, but not many deformed as I am. It is very common to have weak ankles and crooked knees. Yes, very common indeed. This is brought on by stopping the spindle? Yes. Where are you now? In the poorhouse. State what you think as to the circumstances in which you have been placed during all this time of labour, and what you have considered about it as to the hardship and cruelty of it. The witness was too much affected to answer that question. Well, from abused children to abused animals, and we go back to 1710 and Zacharias Conrad von Uffenbach's report of bull-baiting in London. Towards evening, we drove to see the ball baiting, which is held here nearly every Monday in two places. On the morning of the day of the bull, or any other creature that is to be baited, it is led round. It takes place in a large open space or courtyard, on two sides of which high benches have been made for the spectators. First, a young ox or bull was led in and fastened by a long rope to an iron ring in the middle of the yard. Then about thirty dogs, two or three at a time, were let loose on him but he made short work of them, goring them and tossing them high in the air above the height of the first story. Then amid shouts and yells, the butchers to whom the dogs belong sprang forward and caught their beasts right side up to break their fall. They had to keep fast hold of the dogs to hinder them from returning to the attack without barking. Several had such a grip on the bull's throat or ear that their mouths had to be forced open with poles. When the bull had stood it tolerably long, they brought out a small bear and tied him in the same fashion. As soon as the dogs had at him, he stood up on his hind legs and gave some terrific buffets. But if one of them got at his skin, he rolled about in such a fashion that the dogs thought themselves lucky if they came out safe from beneath him. But the most diverting, and worst of all, was a common little ass who had brought out saddled with an ape on his back. As soon as a couple of dogs had been let loose on him, he broke into a prodigious gallop, for he was free, not having been tied up like the other beasts, and he stamped and bit all around him. The ape began to scream most terribly for fear of falling off. If the dogs came too near him, he seized them with his mouth and twirled them around, shaking them so much that they howled prodigiously. Finally, another bull appeared, on whom several crackers had been hung. When these were lit and several dogs let loose on him on a sudden, there was a monstrous hurly-burly. 
And thus was concluded this truly English sport, which vastly delights this nation, but to me seemed nothing very special. Well, we go forward nearly 250 years to 1957 and a springtime report from Norman Lewis of the intelligent ball at San Luca de Barrameda in Spain. The first picador was carried off to the infirmary with a concussion, a limp and broken figure on a board, while the others, refusing to play their part, clattered out of the ring, an almost unheard of action, receiving, to my surprise, the public's full support. Most of the two or three thousand spectators were on their feet, waving their handkerchiefs in the direction of the president's box and demanding the ball's withdrawal. The ball itself, monstrous, watchful and terribly intact, had placed itself in front of the Berladora, behind which Cadena and his three paeons had crowded, wearing the kind of expression that one might expect to see on the faces of men mounting the scaffold. Occasionally one of the peons would dart out and lay lap a forlorn cape and the bull would chase him back, groping after him round the corner of the Berladura with its horn without violence, like a man scooping unhopefully with blunt finger after a whelk withdrawn into the depths of its shell. The crowd was on its feet all the time, producing a great inarticulate roaring of mass protest and the bullfight had come to a standstill. A bull cannot properly be fought by a man armed only with a sword until it has been picked and has pranced about a great deal, tiring itself in its efforts to free itself from the banderillas clinging to the hide of its neck. The sun-cured old herdsman at my side wanted to tell all his neighbours, some of whom were mere townspeople, just how bad this bull was. I knew the first moment I set eyes on him in the coral. I said, someone's been having a game with that brute, and they've no right to put him in the ring with Christians. Don't you fight him, Sonny, he yelled to Cardino. You're within your rights in refusing to go out there and have the devil carve you up. That was the attitude of the crowd as a whole, and it rather surprised me. They were sympathetic to the bullfighter's predicament. They didn't want the fight to go on in these terms. And when the four men edged out from behind the Berladera and the bull charged them and they threw their capes in its face and ran for their lives, the girls screamed and the men cursed them angrily for the risks they were taking. The crowd hated this bull. Bullfight regulars, as well as most writers on the subject, are addicts of the pathetic fallacy. Bulls that are straightforward, predictable and therefore easy to fight are noble, frank, simple, brave. They're described as cooperating loyally in the next 15 minutes, routine which at once is its purpose, climax and culmination of their existences. And they often receive an ovation from an appreciative audience as the trio of horses drag them legs in air from the ring. No one in a Spanish audience has any affection for the one bull in a thousand that possesses that extra grain of intelligence. The ideal bull is a character like the British grenadier or the Chinese warrior of the last century who is supposed to have carried a lamp when attacking at night to give the enemy a sporting chance. In the next day's newspaper report, this bull was amazingly classified as tame, although it was the most aggressive animal I've ever seen in my life. When any human being appeared in the line of its vision, it was on him like a famished tiger. But tameness, apparently, was the professional name for the unbull-like quality of calculation which caused this bull not only to reject the cape in favour of the man, but to attempt to cut off a man's flight by changing the direction of its charge. 
This sinister and misplaced intelligence provoked many furious reactions. I was seated in the Barrera, the first row of seats behind the passageway. Just below me, a press photographer was working with a Leica fitted with a long focus lens, and this man, carried away by his passion, leaned over the barrier fence and struck the ball on the snout with his valuable camera. A spectator, producing a pistol, clambered down into the passageway where he was arrested and carried off by plainclothes policemen and boring servants. The authorities' quandary was acute because the regulations as laid down prevented their dismissing a ball on any other grounds and its physical inability to fight in a proper manner, or the matadors' failure to kill it within 15 minutes of the time when he takes his sword and goes to face it. But physically this ball was in tremendous shape, and although half an hour had passed, the third episode of the fight, sometimes referred to in Spanish as the luck of death, had not yet begun. The outcome of this alarming fast was inevitably an anticlimax, but it taught me something I'd never understood before, that bullfighters, at least some of them, can be brave in a quite extraordinary way. Black banderillas had been sent for. They are banderillas of the ordinary kind, wrapped in black paper, and their use imposes a kind of rare public degradation on the ball, like the stripping of an officer's badges or rank, and decorations before his dishonourable discharge for cowardice in the face of the enemy. The peons, scampering from behind cover, managed to place two of the six banderillas, one man hurling them like enormous untidy darts into the bull's shoulders, while another distracted its attention with his cape. After that, Cardino, shrugging off the pleadings of the crowd, took the sword and the muleta, the red square of cloth stretched over wooden supports that replaces the cape when the last phase of the drama begins, and walked towards the bull, followed by his three obviously terrified peons. Although Cardino had been standing in the shade for the last ten minutes, his forehead and cheeks were shining with sweat, and his mouth was open like a runner's after a hard race. No one in this crowd wanted to see Cardino killed. They wanted this unnatural monster of a bull, disposed of by any means fair or foul, but the rules of the bull ring provided no solution for this kind of emergency. There was no recognised way out but for Cardino to take the sword and Maletta and try to stay alive for 15 minutes, after which time the regulations permit the president to order the steers to be driven into the ring to take out the bull which cannot be killed. Cardino showed his bravery by actually fighting the bull. Perhaps he could not afford to damage his reputation by leaving this bull unkilled, however excusable the circumstances might have made such a course. With the unnerving shrieks of the crowd at his back, he went out, sighted along the sword, lunged and somehow escaped the thrusting horns. It was not good bullfighting. This was clear even to an outsider. Good bullfighting, as a spectacle, is a succession of sculptural groupings of man and beast, composed, held and reformed, with the appearance almost of leisure, and contains nothing of the graceless and ungainly skirmishing that was all that the circumstances permitted Cardeno to offer. Once the sword struck on the frontal bone of the bull's skull, and another time, Cardeno blunted its point on the boss of the horns. Several times it stuck an inch or two in the muscles of the bull's neck, and the bull shrugged it out, sending it flying high into the air. The thing lasted probably half an hour, and contrary to the rules, the steers were not sent for, either because the president was determined to save Cardeno's face, even at the risk of his life, or because there were no steers ready, as there should have been. 
In the end, the too intelligent bull killed over, weakened by the innumerable pinpricks that it had probably hardly felt. It received the coup de grace and was dragged away to a general groan of execration. Cardino, who seemed suddenly to have aged, was given a triumphant tour of the ring by an audience very pleased to see him alive. Well, after all those reports on brutality and savagery, we end with something very different from March 1854. Commodore Matthew Perry, who was the commander of the US naval force that opened Japan to Western influence, reports thus. During our stay in Edo Bay, all the officers and members of the crews had frequent opportunities of mingling freely with the people, both ashore and on board, as many of the natives visited the ships in the business of bringing water and provisions, and on official matters. For the first few days after our arrival at Yokohama, Mr Gay, the chief engineer of Mississippi, assisted by the first assistant engineer Danby with the requisite number of mechanics, was employed in unpacking and putting in working order the locomotive engine, whilst Messrs Draper and Williams were equally busy in preparing to erect the telegraphic posts for the extension of the magnetic lines. Dr Morrow was also engaged in unpacking and arranging the agricultural implements, all intended for presentation to the Emperor, after being first exhibited and explained. The Japanese authorities offered every facility. Sheds were prepared for sheltering the various articles from the weather, a flat piece of ground was assigned to the engineers for laying down the track of the locomotive, Posts were brought and erected as directed by Messrs Draper and Williams, and telegraphic wires of nearly a mile in a direct line were soon extended in as perfect a manner as could have been done in the United States. One end of the wire was at the treaty house, the other at a building allotted for the purpose, and communication was soon opened between the two operators in the English, Dutch and Japanese languages, very much to the amazement of the spectators. Meanwhile, the implements of husbandry had been put together and exhibited, the track laid down and the beautiful little engine with its tiny car set in motion. It could be seen from the ship flying round its circular path, exciting the utmost wonder in the minds of the Japanese. Although this perfect piece of machinery was with its car finished in the most tasteful manner, it was much smaller than I had expected it would have been, the car being incapable of admitting with any comfort even a child of six years. The Japanese, therefore, who rode upon it were seated upon the roof while the engineer placed himself upon the tender. You've been listening to the Witnesses of History podcast with Jeff Lumley. The music was by Eric Matias, www.soundimage.org. <laughs>